Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For a free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Rob and Barr. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. Yes, you do. Awesome. And with us today to talk about The Tree of Life, uh, the movie by Terrence Malick, which you, the listeners, voted we should talk about. It's Brett Kraken. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Have to ask up front because I'm sure everyone is burning with curiosity. Any relation to Hunter McCracken? Um, no, I don't <laughs> think so. I, I get asked about relationships to any and all McCrackens all the time. But it's just such a it's such a name, no. you know? <laughs> it is a name. It is a name. I wish doesn't I even need an adverb. When I saw that there was a prominent actor named McCracken in a in a Terrence Malick film, I did investigate to see if there's any connection i at don't least, think there is but at least you got like asked about a human you know because like i remember there was a period of my life where people realized there was a movie called the secret of the rowan inish <laughs> and they were just like you oh, any, that i want movie? that movie yeah they're like any anything about that movie about you and i was like no it's about like selkies right it's about like a seal woman no that's not yeah. my life mm, you sure i you know even if it was could i tell you it is a secret, isn't it? Anyway. Uh, you should Brett, show that movie to Cora. I should. That's like a her that. thing. Yes, 100%. Actually, yeah. I a should thing for four-year-olds. <laughs> Made for four-year-olds. Uh, so, Brett, would you like to introduce yourself to our listening audience? Yeah, sure. Um, I am a, a journalist. I'm an editor for the Gospel Coalition, which is... Um, a big Christian website. I think we're like in the top 10 Christian websites um, by page views in the world. And I'm the arts and culture editor. Whoa. So I do uh, movie reviews for, for them. I, I write about music and other aspects of culture as well. Um, but yeah, that's my full-time job. So it's a, a fun gig. I work out of my home here in Southern California, married to Kira, have two kids, um, I've written some books, so yeah, I don't want to go go too long, too long on my my bio, but um, I'm here, I think, because Malik is one of my um, pet obsessions as a writer, and I've probably written more like film related content about him than anything else. Um, so um, yeah, I, I I love talking about the Tree of Life and all of his films, but um, this one in particular. So I, I was thrilled to be asked to come on and chat with you guys. And we are glad to have you here. Yeah, Malik, I think, inspired the longest written piece that I've ever done that was published nowhere. <laughs> it was just on my personal <laughs> site. It was like 3,000 words long. It was about a hidden life. And I was just like, I just have to write this. I have to because my brain is full of this movie. So uh, totally. I know how you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, um, writing about Terrence Malik is no chore for me. It's like my, I look forward to every Malik film that comes out and the chance to write about it. It's like any good piece of art, right? The 
the engagement with it is almost more pleasurable than the thing itself if you're a critic. Oh yeah, I mean, we'll get into it when we when we do the review, but like I look forward to seeing a Terrence Malick film because suddenly every aspect of my life feels more full and more meaningful and right. I look forward to doing literally everything because it's like it's as though like the cynicism and the hatred has been washed from my <laughs> mental like perception of my own life by him. Um but before we get into that, uh, clearly we are already getting sucked into the Malik Meyer. <laughs> but we should uh, we should do all the front stuff. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook the Film Stage Show. Give us a comment and rating on iTunes, and of course you can email us podcastfilmstage.com. You can become a patron of this podcast by going to patreon.com/slash the Film Stage Show for as little as one dollar an episode. You get access to our Slack channel and first crack at all of our raffles. And of course, we are brought to you by Mubi the curated streaming service that showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, movie premieres a new film. It could be a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. Anyway, it's guaranteed to be either a movie that you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there's always something new to discover. With movie, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch. Instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival. And they've got some awesome stuff coming on there now. For instance, the Millennium series, uh, the original Nordic noir uh, starring Numi Rapace. Uh, this is, of course, uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, and the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. And these are all the ones that are directed by Niels, Androp- uh, <clears throat> Niels Arden Oplev. Um, so, yeah super looking forward to catching up with those because i remember watching them when they first came to these shores and uh really really liking them i don't like and then they they did the 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 fincher one and then everything i think that was like the crest of the wave it was, the, it was yeah. like the end everyone's like oh yeah that movie and was... then it didn't do that well right. it's like, <laughs> so oh, it that's... just never inspired more What's... i was just about to say i think that it, it wasn't even the movie that was the crest of the wave it was the trailer for the movie with that with the uh mm. the ink mm. and the, the karano the, yeah the karano immigrant song yeah and then um that was great yeah and everyone was like great i saw that trailer i don't need to see the movie <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Rooney Mara got an Oscar nomination for that film. I thought I, she was great in it. I am beginning to realize that I don't remember the Oscars at all. Um, because last last week or the week before, I found out that uh, What's Her Face won one for some movie I never heard of. <laughs> Julianne, Julianne Moore. <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, yes, yeah, still Alice is not great. Yeah, okay. I can't even remember the name of the movie and we just talked about it. But anyway, um, so that's on there uh, amongst a, a bevy of other great stuff. So uh, you should go and check it out. Uh, you can get a free 30-day trial by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial of movie. And uh, that's about it. So uh, how's, like, how's everyone doing? Is everyone doing good? It's been two weeks. The Oscars happened. Does anyone have any Oscar Woo! feelings that they want to air out <laughs> i didn't watch i'll be honest really hated it. <laughs> Bill, you, you hated did it? oh i thought it was great no 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 no. i said people really hated oh it. okay did you hate it yeah no i did not Ooh, robin I, uh, hated I it quite did not. Right. no i, I liked it. Enjoyed it all right this is weird yeah i, yeah, I, just, I thought it was great 
Okay, well that's cool. I had uh, I didn't see it. I didn't realize it was on, and then it started happening, and I realized I didn't even know how to watch it. And then people started winning things, and I realized I didn't care. Um, so, but like I heard, I heard all about the stuff that happened. It's pretty cool that uh, what's his face, um, Anthony Hopkins won. Uh, we had just <laughs> talked about his movie, so yeah. that's that's mm-hmm. nice. He was really good. So yeah, it's great. I was actually I really his- happy about it. I saw his morning after uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like interview, and he was like, "Thanks, awesome." Yeah, that just he was up. like, <laughs> "You know, I was kind of so like when he won, I just screamed. I was so happy. Like he, it was my favorite performance of by a man this year. Uh, I was so super excited. I tweeted about it, and then it started to see all the stream of like anger because Chadwick Boseman didn't win, and I was like, hmm, like." Was I a bad person because I just reveled no. in this? No, no, don't be silly. That's that's a stupid idea that you had. No, you're allowed to like a performance more than another performance and be happy for the performer. And I'll yeah, say again. I wasn't if, like against Chadwick winning. Right, you're not like good, just, <laughs> good that he didn't win. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, but I, I can see why people were very disappointed. Look, here's the thing. I think if Chadwick Boseman had been nominated for Defy Five Bloods and Delroy Lindo had been nominated for Defy Five Bloods, they both would have won. But they nominated them for mm. the, they didn't nominate Bo- Delroy Lindo at all. And they nominated Boseman for the wrong thing. So that's mm-hmm. it. That's my opinion. But, you know, that's not like a sexy or interesting opinion. <laughs> so. I was also really happy Frances McDormand won because I just loved her performance. Right, because the Nomadland. table that she's building with all of her Oscars needed a fourth one. <laughs> another one. Good. She needed a fourth one because she's amazing. I don't even know. How, does she actually have four? Now she has four. Three for acting and one for producing. Damn. Nomadland. All right, yeah. So uh, table, I went with the right piece of furniture. I got nervous. I was like, yeah. "Oh God, should I have some bar stool?" <laughs> all right, um, yeah. So that's cool, uh, and uh, that's that's all I know about. Um, I know that there was some shenanigans with the uh, the timing of certain awards that people were unhappy about. Yeah, they but, uh, doinked on that. The doinking is indeed the technical industry term that I have heard. <laughs> they doinked it. Um, all right, well that's cool. So that's our Oscar thoughts, sort of. Um, <laughs> Robin has been sharing in the Slack a lot of her writing about the Oscars. So if you'd like to check that out, go check there or at her uh, Twitter page, where I also assume she has been sharing her Oscar writing. I have. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that. Uh, let's let's dive into another movie that was deserving of an Oscar but didn't win, and um, this is one that lost to the artist. Which I think uh, is a wound tragedy. from which I will never recover. <laughs> Painful. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, the artists uh, did a lot wrong that year. First of all, its dog pulled a lot of focus from the dog and beginners, which is unconscionable. <laughs> and then it also won the Academy Award uh, away from the Tree of Life, which won the Can Palm d'Or. And it also did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is the first thing it did wrong. Yeah, the first thing it did wrong was ever, you know, allowing itself to come into being. But we're not here to talk about The Artist or any of those other films. We're here to talk about The Tree of Life, uh, the 2011 film. Oh, my God. I can't believe how many years it's been. The 2011 film from writer-director Terrence Malick. This movie stars Brad Pitt, Jessica Chastain, uh, Sean Penn, sort of. I'm sure we'll get into it. 
Hunter McCracken, Ty Sheridan, and uh, a bunch of other people who might have been cut from the movie or only show up for a couple seconds. Anyway, can't wait to talk about it. Here is the trailer. There are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. grown before that tree is tall. All right, that is a snippet of the trailer for The Tree of Life, which we're here to talk about today. This is a classic review, so there will be no spoiler section. So uh, anyone who's coming in here, having never seen this movie, first of all, hi, what's up? Why are you here? But you should also be aware that we will be spoiling this movie, even if uh, this might be a movie that actually can't be spoiled, which I'm sure we'll get into. Let's begin with our guest. Uh, Brett, what are your thoughts on The Tree of Life? And I would also be curious to know, have you seen both versions of this movie? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> um, multiple times. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know where to begin with that, with that question. Um, let me, maybe I'll just start by giving a little bit of a personal history, oral history of May 2011 when this movie came out. Um, I was a huge Malick fan going back to high school and when I was a high schooler in the late 90s and like the Thin Red Line came out and changed my my life pretty much. And so in the early 2000s, in the first decade of the 2000s, when The New World came out, which was his only other, Malick's only other movie, um, you know, but before the tree of life after the thin red line, I had started my career as a film critic shortly after college. And I actually got to go to the press junket for the new world and got to interview um, Sarah green, the producer that Malik works with and Christian Bale and uh, Christopher Plummer and Corianka Kilcher and all those things. So I was like developing as a Malik obsessive um, <laughs> in the years leading up to the tree of life releasing and, like any kind of Malik obsessive person, I was aware of this project. Um, it was called kind of mysteriously referred to as Q for many years. It's the project that he's been wanting to make, you know, for 30 years. It's been in development and he's been shooting, you know, uh, footage over the years, apparently dispatching people to various corners of the world for this project. So I was kind of tracking with this project as it developed. And then um, when the tree of life kind of was announced and the trailer came out and I think it was like December 2010 or something like that. Um, it just kind of kicked it up a notch in, in terms of my anticipation. So um, I devoted the entire month of May to Terrence Malick on my blog. I just only wrote about his films and, and uh, tried to just kind of uh, engage each one of his films, starting with Badlands. Um, when the film premiered at Cannes, uh, which was, I think, like May 15th or something, 2011. I wasn't at Cannes, sadly. So it it killed me that I couldn't be there for the world premiere to see it for the first time, along with some of my critic friends who were there. But here's how obsessed I was. I stayed up until <laughs> whatever time it was in France when the movie premiered to Cannes, to the critics' audience at Cannes. And I 
just watch Twitter. And I, I was like obsessively refreshing my Twitter feed to see what the first reactions were. I'm so excited because I did that exact same thing. <laughs> did you do thing. that too? <laughs> yeah. yeah. My girlfriend was... at the time was furious with me. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was, there was so much mystery surrounding this film. I mean, it was touted as kind of a film about everything, like a film about the universe, the birth and death of the universe. Right. Like there's going to be dinosaurs in it. There's going to be dinosaurs. So the scope of it for like a certain sort of indie film fan and particularly a Malik fan is, was just unspeakably like the hype was off the charts. So yeah, I, I obsessively monitored the reception at Cannes and, um, Thankfully, I got to go to a press screening uh, here in L.A. a couple days after the Cannes premiere. So it wasn't too long before I got to see it with my own eyes. And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, I, I threw a party. So when it premiered to general audiences, I threw a party in Hollywood um, where I got like 30 friends. We, we saw the movie in the Dome and Arclight, which is the best place to see movies in Hollywood. And then we, I rented like a penthouse suite at the Redbury Hotel in Hollywood to kind of have an after <laughs> screening party. And so, you know, I invested a lot of my measly um, savings into Terrence Malick that month. So all of this to say, oh. it's a very, for me, it's a personal it's a, it's an important film in my life. And, and I know it's become that for a lot of people. Um, Roger Ebert before he died, you know, named the tree of life, I think the be- number one on his top 10 or I forget, but it was one of his, it was on his list of the best films um, ever made. And I think it's, it's only rising in stature as the years go on. So it's fun to revisit it now, 10 years later. Um, but yeah, I have seen all the versions. I, I do prefer the the director's cut, the longest version. Um, I think it just fills out a, a lot of the textures and themes in interesting ways. But um, I know that's asking a lot for people to watch. You know, three, like three, three hour three plus. Hours. Yeah, yeah. It's a daunting movie uh, for audiences. Any way you watch it, right? And we can yeah. talk about that. The the reception, the people walking out, it was a whole thing. Um, yeah, they're like, I'm oh, a- we sold this movie on Brad Pitt, and now we got to post signs exactly. that are like, this is an experimental film. There is an in- yeah. like a, a middle section that's going to be weird. Yeah. That yeah. we're not watching issuing refunds. Like, yeah, no, I remember <laughs> even at um, when I saw it at ArcLight, which is like the most like film loving kind of audience mm-hmm. you, you can find in a theater. There were some walkouts there. Like, I'm pretty sure during the universe creation sequence there was some walkouts which that's typically the point at which people you know throw in the towel yep. and can't can't go go on but uh, <laughs> yeah i saw this at um uh, i think bethesda row i want to say it, which is uh, a landmark theater and you know landmark is like wait it's all foreign and independent movies and like you know it's a little more mainstream right. than than other you know indie chains i guess but like it, i was still shocked that there were people who were like what is this? And it's like, how did you come to this and not know? Like, what were you doing? Right. I know. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I do. I mean, I do find with Malik, like a little bit of context for who he is and his kind of auteur, you know, perspective and his approach, his stylistic approach is helpful. Um, so I've, I've written among the many things I've written on Malik. Um, I, like I've written a couple articles over the years on like how to watch a Malik film and, and how to prepare to watch a Malik film. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> um, one day, one day I, I will write a book about it all, the, the 
collected writings on Malik, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your kind of question to just what do I think of the movie and um, feel free to kind of steer it in any direction you guys want to go. But from, from a Christian perspective, which is the personal perspective I'm coming from, it's the, the audience I'm writing for as a critic, this I've, I've written an article. um, My most recent article on the tree of life is titled the tree of life is the, the best Christian film of all time. And, um, and I, I stand by that. I, you know, I, you think of Christian movies, right? And it's a horrible connotation. It's oh like, my God. Yeah. As a Catholic, like, I 100%, yeah. it's like, oh no. It's grimacing. <laughs> you know, you don't, it's like Kirk Cameron, you know, movies, it's Kevin yeah. Sorbo, like oh, no. debating atheists. It's horrible. Right. But so I, I almost hesitate to lump the tree of life into anything with that name, Christian film, but part of me, trying, you know, writing that article that this is the best Christian film ever made is trying to rehabilitate the term and to give people a vision for what Christian cinema can be. Um, So it's, I do think it's a deeply Christian film. Um, The name itself, of course, tips us off to that. The tree of life being, being kind of a key idea in the Bible. Um, It's the bookend of the Bible, right? It's the it shows up in the Garden of Eden and Genesis in kind of the original paradise. And then it shows up in Revelation 22 and the end of the Bible is kind of paradise restored. And, um, and, and it's interesting because I think all of Malick's films, even going back to Badlands, his first film, have this kind of arc of paradise and then paradise lost because of sin or transgression or, you know, uh, pain and then paradise restored at the end in some capacity. And the tree of life is just the most explicit with that arc because it literally like, um, you know, uses that biblical language and imagery. Um, and, uh, and it, and it, it kind of goes to the, the origins of the universe, right. And yeah. the, the ending of the universe. So the Genesis and revelation are not just there in theme, they're there explicitly, in Malik's kind of telling of the story. And um, of course, other books of the Bible uh, loom large, the book of Job, especially um, in the Bible being, being kind of a book all about the problem of pain and suffering and how, how to reckon with the existence of God, um, a benevolent God when there is death of children and, you know, when bad things happen to quote unquote good people. So that's that's a big um, theme of this film that I just think Malik does a beautiful job wrestling with um, in a way that respects the audience, no matter where you're coming from in faith. You know, everyone can relate to the, the hardest questions of existence, um, including the existence of pain and suffering and evil. And um, so that's the journey of Jessica Chastain's character, the, the mom. And so much of the movie is framed around her uh, journey with pain after the death of her middle son and um, and Sean Penn's character, which man, I, <laughs> I don't know where to go. Cause you could talk about each of these characters <laughs> and their arcs so much, but you know, the first words of the film are, are Sean Penn's character, which is, he's the older Jack grown up Jack. Yeah. And he says, mother, brother, it was you. It was they who led me to your door. And it's Jack kind of talking to God 
and saying, you know, it was my mom and my brother who led me back to faith, essentially. That's my reading of it. And, um, and so the whole movie kind of tells us why, how, how does that happen? How does Jack, who has kind of become distanced from God through various events in his life, how does kind of remembering his mom and his late brother, um, how does that kind of help bridge the gap between him and God and faith? And so by the end of the film, of course, Sean, Sean Penn, who is, starts the film wandering in the desert, which is kind of an on the nose metaphor for like, <laughs> you know, a spiritual wander. Um, he, he finishes the film by kind of walking through this door um, of kind of returning to faith and meaning. And um, of course, the final scene um, of this kind of eschatological hope, this vision of Eden, restored, paradise, found. Um, yeah, and so his his mom's and his brother's experiences of dealing with pain, dealing with suffering, uh, dealing with belief in spite of pain um, is, is a big part of the movie. So, and it's a deeply personal movie from Alec. Um, it's a, this is essentially his autobiography of growing up in, in Texas uh, in the 50s with two brothers i think he had two he had a, he had at least one brother who did did die um as a teenager um in the same way that the middle brother in this film dies and so i would venture to guess that the the elder jack the sean penn character who's wrestling with his faith faith and kind of ultimately comes back to faith um by virtue of kind of his mom's witness and his brother's witness it's probably a you know, Sean Penn's probably a proxy of sorts for Malik, I think. Um, so anyway, I'll stop rambling, but um, I would love, Brian, anyone else to chime in at this point, point and direct <laughs> the conversation to something specific. Otherwise, I could go all night. So That's fine with me. I'd love a podcast where I don't have to talk at all. Um, <laughs> before I take over the rambling, uh, let's, uh, let's talk to Bill Graham. Bill Graham, what are your thoughts generally on this movie? And um, have you seen both versions? I have not seen both versions. Um, I wasn't about to subject myself to a three-hour rewatch of of the same movie. Uh, no, no offense to uh, the fine Malik, but uh, no, thank you. Um, but that being said, uh, I did see this in a theater when it came out, um, which was an interesting experience, as uh, our guest is kind of alluding to, and as Brian mentioned as well. Um, there was some kind of I guess kerfuffle. I don't know what what they call it, but there was definitely like a hubbub about the fact that a lot of people, I guess, weren't enjoying the experience of watching a Malik movie, which is like, oh, you didn't know what you were signing up for. Like, what what are you doing here? Um, I guess Jessica Jessica Chastain and uh, Brad Pitt at that point are still kind of or are still box office draws, but I guess at that point we're kind of popping off and it's like, Oh, okay. Uh, he, he chose people that just were hitting at the, at that moment. I mean, you know, so I guess he was getting a, a wide breadth of audiences that maybe weren't typically, uh, going to show up for a Malik film. Um, but that being said, I, still don't know what to make of this film. Um, I, understand its ethereal nature um i get that it is definitely going for a lot of things um 
I don't feel like the first half of the film is nearly as good as the second half. And like, I think part of that is just simply my nature of watching films like this. I need more of a narrative through line. And I think the first half is so kind of like sporadic and in this kind of mode that Malik is, you know, somewhat famous for as well. But I feel like it doesn't really hold my attention like the second half does. And, you know, there is no mistaking that the second half has a much more linear kind of uh, storyline that's basically telling Sean Penn's characters, you know, uh, youth uh, growing up with Brad Pitt as his overbearing father and Jessica Chastain, who is this, I guess, I guess just lovely mother, it just seems like, um, who, uh, you know, is the central focus of this film, uh, the, the growing up portion. And so I feel like that is the strongest parts of this film. Um, but that being said, I, I felt that same way again when I revisited it. And I'm curious to know, I mean, really the difference is like, why would I turn in for a three hour version of this? Um, you know, I, I, and what, what is the actual runtime? Do y'all know off the top of your head? Wait with the original. Huh? Can you say that again, Robin? You broke up. Uh, I think the original release was about two hours and 18. Yeah, it's two hours 15 for mine, but uh, I was wondering about the extended director's cut. It's like I literally think it's about three, three hours. hours. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 188 I, minutes. Um, so does that add more of the ethereal quality or does that add more of the straightforward narrative in the second half? I think it adds more of the straightforward narrative. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a lot, there's a lot that has to do with, um, like the dad's history, uh, Brad Pitt's character, um, there's like a visit from, um, his brother-in-law, you know, uh, Jessica Chastain's brother, um, more about his own father. And then there's a lot of like Jack at school. I mean, like there's, there's a lot it's, and it's all, it's almost all character based. Mm. <clears throat> there's a, there's like a tornado scene that like a tornado hits the town, which is kind of like another Job reference. Um, Biblically. So yeah, it is, it's mostly in the second half that you notice the kind of scenes that are added. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, I'm curious to talk about this film a little bit more. Um, I'm definitely not a, a Malik head by any means. I know, uh, Jordan and, and DJ and, uh, you know, Brian are kind of like the Holy Trinity of like our, our film stage, you know, staff and kind of, uh, you know, Malik heads as well. So, uh, it's interesting that they have that particular bent that I don't necessarily share. So. All right. Robin Barr, what about yourself? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, uh, sort of like, as a persona thing, I think I was a very vocal hater when this, when we were having the contest about which movies we should do, you know, versus classics. My choice was my girl. I think Bill wanted to do Cape Fear and obviously Brian, you want to do Tree of Life. So I was definitely pulling for my own. Um, 
and the you know the joke for me was like i i hated tree of life or anything but the idea of revisiting it was just like the opposite of anything i ever wanted to do and it's funny how memory works because i did like it when i first saw it i saw it at the um, landmark theater in in la um, which was a very memorable experience for me probably because i fell asleep for parts of it <laughs> but i think i fell asleep for like a shorter time than i realized because in my memory you know over these why did I even like that movie? Why was I pulling for it at the Oscars? Like, was it just really that bad a year for the Oscars that this was my favorite movie? Like, I had no exception of my memory of this. And I was like, well, I fell asleep for half of it. And that wasn't true. I maybe fell asleep for like the last five minutes uh, because I was, I, as I was rewatching it, I was like, wait, like, I'm actually kind of digging this more than I remembered. You know, it's something it's some, so funny how we how something can dip in our minds even if the experience of it was you know pretty pretty uh, satisfying to some degree i mean i will agree with uh, i think bill you kind of alluded to this like it is a pretty horrific film um and even though i did enjoy it and i'll talk a, a little bit about why i did i think i remain somewhat skeptical of malik even if i did think that this was overall a pretty good effort um because as i was watching it i was thinking like what is it specifically about this perspective that is kind of getting at me? Uh, you know, I really enjoy the, the, the character-based memories, like we were talking about, you know, this idea of uh, growing up with somebody who is, abu- you know, abusive, emotionally abusive, sometimes physically abusive. And I, at, at the time I was watching this film, I really related to that, um, to a family member who was, you know, kind of bullying in that way. And so I, I deeply felt that. Um, felt the way that Jack did at the time, 10 years ago. Um, but watching it, you know, as a person in their early 30s, I, my thought is like, wait a minute, why, do, like, why does Malik have to present this story framed through the perspective of um, Sean Penn's character and what Sean Penn's character, this big fancy architect living in this big fancy house, like, I wasn't sure what he was getting at and like why that pers- per- particular perspective of that character was very important um, as opposed to framing it from the perspective of somebody who is like maybe a little more humbled in life. Like I, I wasn't sure what he was getting at. And ultimately Jack, older Jack or whoever Sean Penn plays is, is not that important, even though he's the person that's framing the story and kind of I, I mean think you Brett you kind of mentioned this like this character did go go through this like dynamic journey of um of faith and coming back to that faith but ultimately being a big important guy who's having you know these these grief memories and thinking about the life in the universe and everything like I I just kind of struggled with that a little bit because even the very autobiographical in nature as you were saying brett it kind of felt like malik was trying to say something about who gets to have these like big existential thoughts and who gets to uh think about the eschatology (laughs) you know the death of the universe who gets to think about the beginnings of the universe and and who gets to connect that to their own grief and it's like well we'll do you mean that matter whether you are a person who grow, grows up in this idyllic or supposedly idyllic um 
childhood in the suburbs and then becomes a fancy person as opposed to somebody who grew up in like uh i don't know like a city in a completely different circumstance it just felt like only sean penn could see the death of his brother through the perspective of the birth of the universe and i mean i I liked those portions of the film i did find them evocative and provocative but at the end of the day i still just couldn't really jive with the with the i guess the spiritualism of the film and why it had to be this guy having these thoughts like as if nobody else in the universe has ever kind of thought about their own existence through the idea of like the heat death of the universe like i I don't know it just seemed a little too indulgent in some ways to me even though i I overall did did like the film um i don't know i i guess i'm confused by that because are you saying that this guy wouldn't have these thoughts it's not that he wouldn't it's just like why did malik specifically choose this person to be his proxy like what is it about uh sean penn's character that gets to have all of these big thoughts about human existence as opposed to like any any other type of character um I don't so know. It I just seemed really like false. It's to interesting me. to me that you think that they're his thoughts because I would almost say that like the movie is his conversation with God and like, yeah. and so they're not. He, it's not him philosophically musing. It's him being like, kind of granted, um, a vision of the inquest of like this one life juxtaposed against the entirety of of existence and like through the grace of God, literally like finding some peace with all of that. And maybe that's true, but I, you know, to be honest, like as a, as a, an agnostic Jew, that is not how, that's not at all how I relate to like just life in general. So there's no way for me to even really fully understand that conversation that you're describing. Um, you know, if anything, like if I was going to put like a perspective on it, I would say like, I have been reading a lot about, um, you know, wh- whether the existence of extraterrestrial life is, is a thing. Um, and that, that's like a longer conversation. So I kind of read it more from that point of view, like, what even what even are humans, you know, what, what even is this universe? Are there multiple universes? Is, is there life on other planets? Like that's, I kind of took it and really like the religiosity is so separate from my personal experience that it's like, I don't even see it. So it's hard for me to even think of this as like a, uh, a conversation with God, even though maybe it is, or, or it isn't, um, because it it's it's not at all within the realm of my reality, so I I have to read it with I guess like a little more why this guy what is special <laughs> about this guy? I mean I, I don't think that it's I don't think that there is anything about him that is special. I mean like you know uh, just coming again from the Christian perspective, like the same sun shines on all men, you know, like it's just. So then why did he kind of make him a a wealthy big shot? Because I think by removing like the, I think it's, it's, it's almost like, 
it's it's like a narrative shorthand that I see a lot. I mean, like if you if I'm rewatching Mad Men, so that's one of the reasons that I'm thinking about this particular mm-hmm. example. But like Don Draper never has a goddamn problem with money. Like at some point during like the second season mm-hmm. or something, he just offhandedly makes a half million dollars in 1962 or three money. You know, like he's got so much money. He's got a job that he like cannot get fired from even if he wanted to and so that opens up the that opens up the like the 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 space for him to be you know be like oh it's not these things that are making me unhappy like it's not like economic uncertainty it's not you know not having a job it is this is just who i am at my core you know like yeah that would- that would be my my take as well. I think Malik wants this guy to be empty, like his life is empty and meaningless in the same way that like Solomon in wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you know, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon who has the whole world, he's rich, he's wealthy, he finds he finds it all meaningless. He literally says throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. And so I think that's probably just an from the narrative standpoint, that's why he wants Sean Penn's character to be, you know, um, kind of wandering aimlessly spiritually because he has everything on paper, but he's, he doesn't have happiness. He doesn't have, have meaning. And this, this is a theme that Malik, you know, explores a lot, especially in his later films, like a Knight of cups. Oh, Knight of cups is like 100% all about that. that. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think it's autobiographical, you know, Malik had this kind of, rise to fame in the seventies where he all of a sudden was this, you know, ingenue in American new wave cinema. And he probably was experiencing a little bit of this like empty spiritual wandering in his, in the seventies and eighties, you know, in nineties and during that 20 year break where he didn't, he didn't make any. I mean, it's pretty obvious. I think that, that, it, that this character is a proxy in that way. Like he's not a big fancy director, but he's a yeah. creator. He's an architect. Yep. He lives in a nice house. Like I, I get that aspect of it. And I mean, it is kind of, it is shorthand to say like um, the man who has it all has absolutely nothing. It's almost like cliche, I think. Um, but at the time, I mean, when, when was the last time there was a Malick film that, showed a perspective that he wasn't like a proxy for in some way i just i i think i i like i said i'm a little bit skeptical because it's like what like do you see beyond yourself or do you see beyond like your perspective and this is not somebody who's who has this is somebody who's been like relatively privileged i would say like even growing up in like a suburban life and then going off to harvard and at mit like he's been at the upper echelons of society his whole life so you really have to make something special i think for me to um to really understand your point of view and say like okay this is actually interesting and i think he does that with the parental abuse that you see later in the film um that becomes i think the the engine the emotional engine of the film i mean i don't that's an interesting thing to say is like, you know, is there anything that he's not a problem? I mean, everything that you ever create is going to be filtered through your eyes. Yeah. Isn't that true so, of any artist? Like, yeah. I mean, how can you not kind of insert your, your life experience and your point of view into your work? 
I mean, and I think I would say in the tree of life, the mom, Jessica Chastain, we get a lot of her interior world as well. Like the whole large portions of the film are framed in terms of her wrestling through personal grief. And so I think that Malik is trying to get outside of himself in that respect, trying to wrestle with what his mom must have experienced in losing a son. So I don't think it's all just him kind of indulgently. Um, yeah, I would say like yeah. Badlands. Similarly, I, I you know, I'm not I'm not sure about Days of Heaven. You know, a hidden is, life is all from the perspective of Fanny, right? Um, Valerie Plackner's character. Yeah. Um, so, and then that, um, you know, I would say like the New World also comes a lot of a lot from the unnamed Pocahontas. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, like the, I mean, John Smith literally pieces out like halfway through that movie right she's the heart of that film for sure yeah so you know i don't know it's 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 interesting though and it is weird almost that we're talking this much even about sean penn just because like he was furious at how much he was cut out of this movie and i am thankful i think we all are um because i definitely think that like you know even even those of us here who who didn't like this movie that much still like say like oh the second part where like you know it's the kids and the parents that's the best part um definitely as as for me like i i was um i found the thin red line like right after it came out i guess on hbo or something like i think it was like a free weekend of hbo and my parents like videotaped it for me because you know as a as a kid who was probably like 11 or 12 i was super into uh into world war ii you know as you as you must be um (laughs) and i saw that movie it was was not the saving private ryan-esque you know kind of rousing you know john wayne style you know action film that i was expecting and it blew my goddamn mind. And I watched everything else that I could find by this guy. And I was like, oh, my God, he's only made three freaking movies. And then uh, The New World came out. And I, I dragged a friend of mine to go see that in a quasi date. And she was like, I don't know what most of that movie was, but I know it was very pretty. And I know that I feel extremely moved by it. Um, and then, yeah, I remember reading all about this this Q movie that he was he was talking about. And there was a point where, like... I don't even remember if if this is my own brain just messing with me, but I feel like there was a point where like the 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 plot synopsis for Q was that there was some sort of beast slumbering under a swamp and like dreaming of humanity, and I was like, I don't know what that means. I that. But I am totally <laughs> that sounds like a Herzog movie. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this sounds super cool. And then the Tree of Life came out like I don't know six or seven years later, and um. I was all in on this movie. I did the the staying up on Twitter thing. I I was one of those people who like just would obsessively watch the trailer on YouTube and um I looked at every frame on that initial poster that came out that was just basically like nothing but one perfect shot style <laughs> clips. Um <clears throat> and then when I went to the movie, I went with my girlfriend at the time and I didn't drink for like 3 days beforehand. <laughs> Because I didn't want to be hungover. Um, I wanted to like be in a state of absolute like goodness, like not spiritually, but like literally and physically. Like I didn't want to be sitting in the theater being like, oh my God, I'm so dehydrated. My head hurts. So I like took better care of myself than I had in probably like a year. And we went and we watched it together. 
and she like noted how excited I was that I like she was she said she was literally worried for me if the movie was bad. She was like, I've never seen you so excited for anything. And all, the the greatest fear in my life at that moment was that you wouldn't like the movie because I don't know how you'd recover from it. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a very, movie... very similar conversation with my my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. She was worried for my sake as well. And <laughs> we literally had that conversation. Like, I don't know if you're going to be OK if this is terrible yeah i feel like i'm worried about both of you now <laughs> like it's got that point i got into the like our biggest fight my wife and i was probably um there was a, a malik retrospective um in, at lacma um at, here in la um the i think it was like the spring uh, that this movie came out spring of 2011 and i i like insisted on going to all of the screenings of badlands and days of heaven and thin red line and i schlepped kira my wife you know with me and she just hated that like why do i have to go to like all the way to lacma to see these movies with you so it is yeah i think it, she's right to be worried at times probably <laughs> i um the, i so i uh, my family lived in houston i was going to school in maryland and the afi silver was having a retrospective of all the malik films like on 35 millimeter and it started the day after I left to come home for a summer vacation. And I like pleaded with my parents. I was like, change my plane ticket. I want to stay for one more week so I can see these movies. And they, of course, did not take me up on that. They were like, good where, parents. Where are you going to live? All of your stuff is already in storage. I was like, I can couch surf. It'll be fine. I just need to be able to get to Silver Spring to see these movies and they didn't let me do it and I will never forgive them. Um, but yeah, as that's that. Um, so yeah, this, and like this movie, it like literally shook me to my core. Like it made me excited, more excited. Like I had always wanted to be a father, but like watching this movie instilled in me even more like my desire to raise children and like helped to clarify kind of the way that I looked at them. I was on a podcast once with my friend, uh, Ryan McNeil, um, who does uh, the matinee.ca and he he does a, a section before the review where he asks his uh, guests a series of questions and one of them was if you could have made any movie what movie would you want to be the person who who made it and um, I said the tree of life and he was like why <laughs> that's such a weird choice and I said because I I've constantly struggled to explain my Christianity and my Catholicism to people. And I feel like it's the movie that most gets what that means to me and why it makes sense to me. And like what, what it all, how it syncs up with like the entirety of what we know about existence. And it just so thoroughly describes it that I'm like furious that Terrence Malick was able to say it, you know, as succinctly as you can, if it's like a nearly three hour long movie um, but still more succinctly than I could have done it before I saw that movie. So yeah, this, this movie has been, um, just like an incredible force through my life <clears throat> and like just watching it the yesterday for this podcast, I was like, just reminded of how much of like the way that I see the world and like interpret life and everything and how much i see of like my daughter's own 
development and growth is like filtered through kind of the language that this movie gave me to understand and describe all of that, which, um, I mean, like, I, I don't even know that I'd put the tree of life as my favorite Malick movie for the longest time. I probably would have said the thin red line just cause it was first. And, and it was the one that like woke me up the most just in terms of what cinema could do. Now it might be a hidden life just because of how poignant and moved and like, again, spiritually woken I was by that movie. But this movie has probably affected me more than any other film I've ever watched in terms of the way that I've like lived my life and, and grown to like accept and interpret my own experiences. And, um, I find it funny. I think this movie and beginners were kind of part of the same year of cinema and Beginners is another movie like this one. I just keep going back to them like again and again and again. And I think, honestly, I think The Grey was that year too. And these might be like the three movies that like get me through the times of my life that are the hardest to get through. And um, I don't know if there was something going on in my life at that period that like singed them, you know, into my my subconscious in that way. Or if they really were just like, this triad of movies that hit me in the right way, but just their, uh, their whole expression of, of life and living and being alive and the way you see things and interpret them has really stuck around in my head. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a yeah, lot I of would... information. <laughs> Can I ask you a question about that, Brian? Please do. What about this movie? Do you want to be a dad? Just there's uh, so here's this is a thing we've talked about already kind of that this movie like it's it's almost like this movie begins with the question of like, you know, I am sad and my brother is dead and why and like demanding an answer. And then it's basically like God just saunters in and is like, all right, let me let me tell you the whole plan. All right. So there's nothing. And then I'm going to do all this stuff. And, you know, it's going to be stars and fires and crucibles and lightning strikes and like life is going to come. And then there's going to be weird sea creatures and dinosaurs. And then you're going to be here for like less than a nanosecond. And then everything's going to keep going and then there's going to be nothing again. Um, And so, like, you know, I can't explain to you why you've been in pain. I can't explain to you the fullness of your experience and what you've been through. But even though the story that I'm telling is, is literally billions and trillions of years long. We're going to spend like an hour and 30 minutes of this, you know, at the time, two hour and 10 or two hour and 15 minute movie firmly situated in your childhood. Because even though the pain is, is present now, and even though you are a man with a life and a job and a wife and, you know, a house, you're still, somehow back then you are still in the shadow Mm -hmm. and the embrace of your mom and your dad and like that's just true it's just the way that things are it's like i whenever i am even with my own daughter i i think about my own childhood like there's not a day that goes by that i don't have some recollection of being a boy and, you know, being spoken to by my parents or, you know, wandering through the woods or screwing up a play in baseball or or doing something like there's just so much of that that goes back to me. And, you know, it's just like the, my parents will 
forever be the most important people in my life and to be that to someone and to help bring a consciousness and a life into this world and be part of this weird, seemingly senseless cosmic dance that is existence is the most formative and important and impactful thing that I could ever do. Does that, does that mm. make sense? Did anything I just say yeah. like, sync up? So it, what it drew out for you were your memories and not just your memories, but how much your childhood plays out continuously for you. Um, not in the recesses of your mind, but almost like they're part of you still living is the sense that I'm getting what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, it's, it's every aspect of your life, you know, you will bring back to the first time that thing ever happened. Like, and so the person who's with you through most of the first times anything ever happened is, is your parents. Like they're the ones who are mm-hmm. guiding you for like the first part of your life. And so, yeah, it's, it's a huge responsibility and it's, it's a, it's not something that you really can shake away. You know, if they've done it right, <laughs> that's the hope. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing is that this is such a, not, I wouldn't call this like an ideal childhood because obviously there are issues in that marriage and issues in that household, but he does present like so many scenes of Jessica Chastain dancing barefoot <laughs> on the lawn and i just kept thinking woman did not exist like i do not believe this perspective of this woman she seems too angelic i feel like that's just your cynicism like decimating the oh the pet the pot calls the kettle black my friend i know but like Um, no but i am this person to be (laughs) extant and you're like your your lack of taking the movie at face value when the movie seems to give no reason to believe that this is an unreliable narrator i just kind of wish that she had more of a life because Brad Pitt's character, and he's excellent in this movie, and he really should have gotten an Oscar nomination for this. He was very fully fully realized for me, whereas... And you've only seen the, the shorter version, right? This I've only seen the shorter version. Okay. Um, Interesting. So, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's more developed in the second version. I think they but both she, are. Was, uh, in, in the second version, you know, and Brett, you, you've okay. seen the second version, so maybe you can back me up on this. I feel like they both are, and I feel like they are both equally as kind of archetypal in the 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 um the first version. Um, I won't even call mm-hmm. it like the director's cut because Malik was totally cool with the first cut of the movie. He just wanted to do it right, again. and that's why it's yeah. Um, it's just hard for me to like say, oh well, he didn't get his full. He got his word in, so I'm going to take the original two hours and fifteen minutes as the the film. You know, yeah. I just but think even I, still, there's a part of me that thinks that like. Brad Pitt, he is playing an archetype with not a lot of like shading, but because men, especially fathers in movies, are usually so much less than that, even just because he's so less intense. No, just less like felt, like less realized. Like he doesn't have Mm. a lot of specifics, but the fact that they give him like anything makes him feel like revelatory. I don't know. It just feels like, you know, and I say this as someone who is raised in like the dads of the 90s, you know, the Al Bundys and the Homer Simpsons, where it's just like I'm seeing these dads on television who suck and who are incapable of caring for their families 
and who are, you know, just disinterested. And it was weird because I never understood that that might be an experience that someone had because my own father was so, you know, wrapped up in my life and he was such an important part of my development and everything. And, um, so yeah, it was, it's, I think that this movie just by dint of not quite going as flat with the father character, you know, by giving him the small things they do, it makes him feel more fully realized. And then the mom, because moms are usually, you know, deified and idealized in movies to a point that's, that's kind of wild. You know, Jessica Chastain is able to give it shading because she's an incredible performer, but it just feels more what flat shading? because you're used she to She is it. deified. Like, what shading? I mean, again, this is nothing about her performance. I I don't really understand the... I mean, unless this... Again, I don't really understand, like, uh, cr- the lore of Christianity. But is she supposed to be, like, a an idealized mother figure, like the way Mary yeah, is? Like, I, gonna, I, I don't really know. I was going to say that I think she comes across as deified and you know, um, idealized in part because I think Malik is explicitly trying to evoke Marian imagery and kind of, you know, the last, the last words she utters in the film, uh, are, I give him to you. I give you my son, which is a very kind of Christian evocative line, right. Of Mm -hmm. Mary kind Mm -hmm. of giving his son, uh, sacrificing him, um, <clears throat> to God's purposes um, and kind of releasing the pain of uh, why would you take my son, you know, in the same way that Mary probably felt that way with Christ. So he's making connections with Mary. And I think that's part of why she does have this hallowed kind of glow around her. Mm. Um, and, you know, it I felt think connect- like unfair to the character. <laughs> well, unless you understand kind of what is going on with the Christian iconography there. And I, I, I talk about this in some of my articles, like, even with the son who dies, uh, RL, there's throughout the film, there's interesting little uh, visual connotations that connect him to Christ. And um, so her kind of saying, I give you my son, you know, <laughs> Malik is making connections both with her being Mary and with that son who dies of uh, being a Christ kind of evocative character. Even the initials, the fact that Malik calls this character RL one of the names Jesus calls himself is the resurrection and the life. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if he's like making that connection by naming that character RL, but there's other times in the film where um, I think he's making direct connections to, to that character and uh, just the imagery and meaning of, of Jesus. But I think one broad thing that comes up for me with the discussion of like, her character being kind of too perfect or too virtuous and kind of connecting with Brian, what you were saying about this movie kind of making you want to be a better father and just kind of changing your life. Um, I, I, I related to that. And um, I, I do think it's changed kind of the way I look at fatherhood as well. And, you know, I think it's a great when movies and art generally can embody virtue to such an extent that it inspires us to want to live more virtuously, to live better. Um, anytime art can do that, it's a good thing. And it's rare in today's world where a movie has that effect. Um, and I think we are kind of cynical as a society and not buying it when there's like goodness and virtue and, and beauty in the just raw sense depicted so sincerely. 
uh, as it is in this film. But if it can be aspirational for viewers, like it definitely has been for me and it sounds like for Brian, I think that's a good thing. And um, I think like Ted Lasso is another example. I don't know if you guys have seen Ted Lasso, but it's a rare Mm -hmm. TV show that uh, actually attempts to portray virtue and goodness in a believable or aspirational way. Like, you know, I left that show being like, I want to like be like Ted Lasso um, Mm -hmm. and some of the other characters in that film. And so the tree of life is that way for me as well. Um, It functions as kind of this, yeah, it comes across a little bit um, idealistic, certainly at times, but I mean, it's definitely not a movie that shies away from the messiness of life either. um, No, it doesn't. The pain and the suffering and, with Jessica Chastain's character, so much of this movie being prompted by her questions. Like I love the, the way that the whole universe being created sequence begins is, is her asking questions like, God, where are you? Like, what, like, are you there? Are you silent? Like, how could this happen? And, and it's almost like, um, the universe creation sequence is God responding in the same way that God responds in Job in the book of Job 38, which is the epigraph of the film. The the film opens with the words from Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's like what Job, that's what God says to Job when he's asking these questions about pain and suffering and how could this happen to me? Um, so I think the whole movie is a conversation. Like Brian, I think you mentioned that it's a conversation between Sean Penn's character and God, but within that kind of uh, Jessica Chastain's character and God. And um, so obviously it, uh, I think it reaches people in different ways, depending on your, you know, your own spiritual journey. So to your point, Robin, it didn't land on you in the same way because you don't know what that looks like. And I think that's fair for sure. But um, for, for it some spoke to me in other ways. Yeah. And that's great. Not, not yeah. spiritual. <laughs> no, that's great. And I think it's a film that can be you know, appreciated on so many different levels, but for, for someone of a Christian faith <clears throat> and back background, like I really related Brian, I think you said something about like seeing this movie and finally feeling like a movie captured elements of, your faith in a way that was like beautiful and intellectually like respectable (laughs) and robust. I had the same feeling, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, like most of Christian films are just really bad and really on the nose and horrible art. And so for someone like myself who loves arts and and cares about, you know, just avant-garde kind of pushing artistic mediums forward, but also cares about the substance of religion and faith to have those worlds come together in such a layered, complicated way as they do in this film was just revelatory for me. And I teach a class uh, at a college um, called Faith and Film, where I, I have the students watch films that wrestle with religion and faith in intellectually honest and artistically, you know, um, legitimate ways and we watch films like paul schrader's first reformed and martin scorsese's silence and and we watch Mm -hmm. the tree of life and it's 
always fun to introduce it to these students for the first time because some of them just have no paradigm for something like this, like a, a movie that sincerely like embraces Christianity and faith, but not in a heavy handed kind of uh, evangelical way, but in a, a way that wrestles with deep human questions. It's just refreshing. And, and um, I, I, I always like challenge these students, like if you're going to make films, like, you know, and you're a Christian, like, try to be like this like doesn't have to be exactly <laughs> like Malik. god please don't go the pure yeah. flicks route <laughs> don't follow the pure flicks route like follow the malik route that's not to say you have to like make films that are all about butterflies and ladies twirling around in wheat fields like but make films that are interesting and artistically groundbreaking and that wrestle with uh human issues while simultaneously grasping onto faith in a sincere non-cynical way which is what Malik does so well, I think. Yeah, for me, it's it's like, you know, you named a bunch of movies that like when people say like, you know, as a Christian, like what's, you know, a good movie? And I'm just like, you know, Tree of Life is a great one. <laughs> First Reformed is fun. Uh, Silence is a big one. Sometimes I, if I'm feeling especially cheeky, I'll throw out like uh, bringing out the dead. You know, you can get a, you can get a lot of mileage from a Scorsese movie. Um and yeah, I just, there's something about that, you know, I, I have a, a huge problem with the, the whole, like you said, the Kirk Cameron, pure flicks, kind of the war room, fireproof kind of stuff, you know, God's not dead 17 or whatever the hell they're on. Um, yeah. it's, I just, I don't like having my faith affirmed in an infantilizing way of like it's cool if these people don't like you they're gonna go to hell and you'll get reward in the afterlife because like that's not what i'm here for (laughs) as a religious person um i'm here for things like this you know i'm i'm here for the i like the questions almost the questions of faith almost drive me i mean like there's you know the paschal mystery like the mystery of faith like so much of a catholic mass is the word mystery just getting thrown at you Um, that it's, I, I have always lived, you know, my Catholic faith on a bubble really. Cause that's like how it's been pitched to me is like, isn't this weird? Isn't this strange? Like what, what is going on? Like, you know, how do we even begin to look at this? And almost every homily I've ever heard has been, you know, pitched in that way of like this is this is what we just heard today now let's like really try to drill down into it in a practical way like is this possible like the things we're being told do they make sense like can we even do that and so i i've always kind of veered hard away from the more evangelical yeah. You know, kind of, you know, it's if, you know, just trust in Jesus. And it's like, that's not what you're told to do, really. <laughs> that's not what I just heard. Um, so, yeah, I that's, you know, it's it, it was I think it was another thing that was kind of nice about this movie was feeling that level of honest, like, you know, Christian inquisitiveness that wasn't part of the God's not dead kind of kind of thing (laughs) yeah one of the one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when jack boy jack is is praying and um 
it's kind of like a two level prayer where like on the the one level he's kind of praying as he thinks he should pray pray like he's doing the motions of religion like help me not to sass my dad help me not to get dogs and fights you know help me not to tell lies but then malik intersperses these like voiceover prayers that are kind of like his his real prayers like his truly like wrestling with god prayers as a boy and you know it's things like you know god where were you like how could you let a boy die like throughout the film we hear those honest prayers from jack and juxtaposing like his kind of these are the boy prayers i should be praying like help me not to sass my dad with the honest prayers it's like malik is is deconstructing this idea of you know that faith can't allow for questions and wrestling and like talking directly to god in in ways that feel like you're not allowed to go there and so that's that, that's how the voiceovers function for multiple characters in the film i think um primarily jack but also uh Jessica Chastain's Mrs. O'Brien's character. Uh, and I love that. I love how honest um, the prayers are in the movie. I related to that so much. One of his prayers at some point, like, please kill my dad. Yeah. yeah I think mm-hmm. there is something like that. I don't remember the specific words, but mm-hmm. yeah. Or like, I like, <laughs> let him die no. or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's so interesting because we we haven't really touched on the abuse. Uh, I mean, th- so let's just be real. Like there is a redemption arc for Brad Pitt's character, um, but it it still didn't make me f- exactly forgive the bullying and the domineering nature of the dad. And I understand there's obviously you know issues of masculinity, and um, maybe the three hour version gets into more of of why he's such a domineering personality but i i felt very frustrated with jessica chastain's character and one of the reasons i was frustrated is not just because i felt like she was underdeveloped but um she she was so silent you know during those scenes um except for maybe one scene where she finally like speaks up on behalf of her kids and there was like a some semi fight sequence between her and and Brad Pitt's character where they're just sort of wrestling until he is able to overcome her and that's supposed to be a beautiful sequence whereas I, I took it as um the wife is always the first victim which is a phrase that I, I I've heard over the years um in cases of child abuse or what I think of this, this movie is clearly wrestling with emotional abuse from parents at the very least. And so every scene where she's so silent, I just had to kept reminding myself, well, she's his first victim. She, he's domineering over her. Um, but you know, you don't really get a sense of what, what that means for her. And I just kept feeling hit over the head with this like Oedipal dynamic instead where it's like the mother, the mother kill the father. Like it, it, it was just so, um, it was so blatant. I, did anybody else get that sense? Of an, of a, like of an Oedipal undertone, like an Oedipal undertone, but also just 
her her role in like allowing the abuse and whether it means she was abused herself to some degree or like and when i say abused i mean like the way that he could manipulate and control people yeah i mean i think that that's like a dynamic in the film that is probably just reflective of what it was like in in you know malik's uh childhood perhaps and he's not sugarcoating that i don't i don't think he's you know the relationship with the dad and kind of the point of view of the film is complicated to say the least Mm -hmm. and um i I think that he's even with his redemption arc it's not like he's absolved uh, and there's still a lot of baggage you know the fact that the film opens with the line like mother brother it was you who led me to your Mm -hmm. door the father's left out, right? So that's interesting. So right, but even, then there's like possibly yeah. the most famous line from the movie, which is "Mother, Father, always you wrestle right. inside me." Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's some sort of you know positive impact the father has had on Jack's life, and and whatever whatever we make of the nature and grace kind of uh, relationship, I think that's you know. Well, I mean, related. there's there's yeah. a balance. I mean, like you can't you cannot live your entire life in, in the state of grace yeah. because you, you will be devoured by something <laughs> like nature isn't hard because it wants to be. It's hard because it, it feels that it must be, you know, like that's it's, it is nature. Like that's just what it is. Like my daughter, I, you know, I was walking with my daughter and you know, we were, we were talking and looking at birds um, I had my camera and she was asking me to take pictures of birds and she saw a blue jay and said, Oh, take a picture of the blue jay. So I took a picture of the blue jay and I showed it to her and she said it was pretty. And I said, I hate blue jays. And she asked me why. And I didn't tell her because I didn't want to have to explain to my four-year-old like, Oh, because blue jays like eat the children of other birds. <laughs> like blue jays are a fucking asshole. Um, Blue Jays are the worst. That is not something my parents would have ever shied away from telling me. I just did like, you know, I'll tell her at some point, but like on a walk, like when the sun is setting, I was just like, yeah, we'll just save that for another time. But like, you know, it's, it's, you know, nature sucks. Nature, these things happen because they need to. I was, um, I was ripping a vine down from a tree today in my backyard because I, I've been trying to reclaim a portion of my backyard and I realized that what I thought was a tree was actually an incredibly overgrown grapevine that must have been growing for like 10 years before I even bought this house. <laughs> and so I cut it and started pulling it out of this oak tree and it went to the top of the oak tree. And I thought about a different Terrence Malick movie, um, The Thin Red Line, where they literally say, like, you know, what do you like? You, know, you think war is like some cruel thing? Like, war is nature. Look at the vine, how it like twines around the tree. Like, all of nature is at war. And I was like ripping this goddamn vine down. And in between thinking, I cannot believe how poorly whoever had this house before me took care of it, I thought of that line. And Cora was asking, like, you're hurting the tree. And I was like, the vine is hurting the tree. I'm hurting the tree. But once the vine is gone, the tree will be fine. Like, that's just where we're at right now. You know? So. What a metaphor. I know. I was, you know, it, but then, of course, like the metaphor is undercut by me constantly telling her to back up because she kept wanting to stand right next to me. And I was like, a goddamn branch <laughs> is going to come down and hit my kid on the head. I, I think that, you know, with 
nature. There's so much we could talk about with Malik generally, but you know, he's often accused of basically creating like films that are like screensaver, like imagery of like beautiful, like golden hour nature shots and people kind of wandering through, you know, sunset fields. And I think it's, that's only half right. Like he does have a lot of that. He does have a lot of nature kind of in its purest, beautiful form, but the, the nature is cruel aspect of nature is also very present and it shows up in all of his films, like in the tree of life, there's like injured dogs that we see in at various, in various points in all of his films, there's like dying animals or fires yeah, and fields injured, or plagues of locusts, the injured dinosaur. So his relationship to nature, I think is, is basically like within nature itself, there's both grace there's like the gift of nature and it, the fact that it's more beautiful than it needs to be for mere survival. And there's like the hard reality of nature is cruel and uh, cut cutthroat and survival of the fittest, you know? So I think, yeah. I think all of that kind of plays out though in, in that dinosaur sequence near the lake yep. or whatever it is yeah. where that, I guess, I have no clue what kind of dinosaurs these are because I'm not very familiar with them, but it looks like some kind of raptor type dinosaur like steps on this smaller dinosaur because it is injured and basically about to die and it kind of steps on it and I can't tell if this is a a carnivore or a uh, what a herbivore or what but it definitely steps on it and it makes kind of like this motion that it's like okay I'm gonna eat you and then it steps off of it and it's like you're just gonna die here all right, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to go find something else to eat then. And it's just like... It almost seemed like a coup de gras, if anything. I just kept like, is he just putting it out of its misery? Yeah, I mean, I guess. But, I mean, he does, He just walks walks away from it and just like, nah, not not feeling this. Like, my, my instinct is, is it sick? Is that why he, like, walked... And I'm giving this this fucking dinosaur a gender, but... No, but I thought about it, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you're... It, I mean, they, they don't put that scene in there for no reason. Like, there's no, a reason no, that you yeah. see this this Parasaurolophus, which is what I think the injured one is, you know, hopping around the forest and then, like, sick on the shore of this river. And then this, you know, probably, like, you know, it looks predatory to me kind of, you know, mm-hmm. raptorish, you know, creature coming over, pressing on its head and then kind of like realizing how weak it is and like mm-hmm. leaving, like just be yeah. like I don't know if it's pity or like courtesy or what, but it, there's definitely a kind of knowing look of like, oh, okay. Like this You're is going to die. Yeah, this is bad and I'm I'm just going to let you I'm I'm not going to make this worse for you. Mm-hmm. it's almost like an act of mercy like <laughs> the dinosaur is like somehow like having this anthropomorphized human like merciful response to this poor unfortunate dinosaur which i kind of love because it's almost like that's that's like a moment of being like yeah humans aren't the first yeah. you know biological entities on this planet yeah. to have felt something that might be construed as like humanity yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting if you watch the film the film enough times, like I I have, you start picking up these interesting like um, 
callbacks in the like childhood section that are like uh, evoking some of the stuff that happens in the universe creation sequence. So the, the dinosaur moment of like the, the stronger kind of healthy dinosaur that could hurt this injured dinosaur could, you know, be cruel and chooses mercy instead. It's kind of mimicked a couple times with the boys, but one time in particular um, is when the, when Jack uh, is asking his brother to like put his finger in like the socket of this thing. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he could, he has, he has the power to like injure his brother and, and chooses not to right instead of the way of nature just kind of using his brute Darwinian superiority to, to um, destroy the, yeah, the weaker. To, he chooses mercy. I, and yeah. I, I talked my brother into sticking his finger into this thing. Like not, not only sticking his finger into it, but like licking his finger first to make sure it's good <laughs> and wet and, and conducive. And you know, now it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Um, now stick your finger in there. But, I mean, but he yeah, does shoot and, the BB gun. Yeah, so in that, and, and, yeah, yeah, that's he the does, he, does, he chooses the nature route in that scene, the, mm-hmm. the gun. But of course, that's the scene that that really catalyzes his his like repentance and his his realization that man, I've spiraled down <laughs> into the depths uh, of my depravity, and that was the like clincher for him to like actually turn and. Is, is- is that though? Because is does that sequence happen before or after he invades that house? Oh, it happens after. Yeah, the him shooting okay. the brothers, okay. him shooting his brother with the BB gun is like the last in in the long string of bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like so all, much all of the movie exploding a frog, exploding a frog, barking away into, from his father. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The father's away. Jack, you know explores his his dark side and well that's actually the longest the the interesting thing is that like it's even his dad is gone his his the Mm -hmm. darker side comes out right which you know or he's finally free like i don't know i right he's free i I took issue father's like you know oversight and therefore he begins to act out more like he he is able to indulge in the, or he acts out more because he's so domineered by his father that his father his behavior pushes him to be more rebellious or to be or to look outside of those boundaries like specifically because he he is so repressed like I don't think his father is stopping him from from being himself per se I think their relationship is the catalyst for him to start acting out. Well, he says that he, you know, he even says to his father, like, I'm more like you than her. Like, he can feel within himself all the things that he sees in his father already existing. And um, I Or you say that, that to user to make them love you. Like, it's a thing you say to somebody who is hurting you, too, is to make them feel like you understand them or that they understand you. Well, no, I'm not saying I don't, I don't think, believe I don't, him, but... Yeah, it, I'm, I don't think that he's saying it like, you, like, we're not so different, you and I. I think he's saying it in, like, it, it is a kind of, like, we're in the same shitty boat, and you think that I don't understand what's going on, but, like, I do, because I am like you. And it's it's... It's difficult, but what's interesting is that uh, when he's older and he says, like, you know, that they wrestle inside of him, I think that is 
kind of what the movie is saying. You take these two disparate people who typify or, or exemplify these two extremes and, you know, you, you make them a kind of binary system that you have to start, you know, trying to find the balance between. And like, that's how you, yeah, the feminine, the masculine. Yeah. I mean, but that bothered me, right? Like it's a one, it's another way in which Malik, I think subconsciously does, does a disservice to like his one female character, which is to make her exemplify this idea of grace, which is like, how can anybody live up to that? How can any one woman live up to this concept? And but I mean, she and does, it, doesn't it, it she? also denies women. Yeah, but it denies women like th- our ability to indulge in nature and to be predatorial and does predatorial. And, and I mean, this isn't angry. I mean, it's, yeah, it does. It's this one boy's experience. I mean, are you saying that Brad Pitt? Yeah, but he's universalizing character? it by making about like the entire universe. Like he is saying, this is it no, like he's this, is, that the universe this is everything exists and within it this one family existed the, the movie is about the insignificant this is a dark way to put it it's about the <laughs> in the cosmic insignificance of this family and how little sure. that they matter outside of their own experience which to them is the entire world mm-hmm. but it like is, it is it, their universe right so like he's not saying like this these people are all people. He's saying these people are these people. And guess what? The universe is fucking huge. And they don't really matter. Like they're this is just their lived experience, which to them is the be all end all of everything. But God literally says to Job like, "You want answers? Where the heck were you?" When I laid down the pillars and the foundations and the boarding, I can't even remember the quote, the boarding stars and the sons of God sang and everything. Like, what are you talking about? Like, get out of here. Like, I don't owe you these answers. You can't understand. I can only grant you the knowledge that the mystery exists and that there there is a purpose and you are here. But like, that's it. So like to say that these people are being used as a, a you know, microcosm of all of humanity is just if incorrect, I feel. I, I don't I don't necessarily see that at all, especially with with the depiction of Brad Pitt's character and, and how domineering he is and everything like that. I think I think it would be silly to to suggest that that's that's everybody's father. Right, like right, because if RL had grown up specific. and been a dad, he would not have been like that. Because RL is a is a man who is very much like his mom. Like they they talk about it all the time. And then he died at war. <laughs> have I yeah, lost I, everyone? Okay. I agree with I agree with you in terms of this. Not is not intended to be a universal kind of application to everyone. It's the universe is invoked in the context of the specificity of this, this family. And, and within that, the, the mom's journey of grief and the, the only reason the universe is invoked visually and musically is to kind of draw in that Job conversation of What's... like, here's how we can wrestle with grief. Mm-hmm. Um, Mrs. O'Brien by like bringing you to that Job 38 moment of me creating the, the universe. So let's go there. Well, what's also interesting, and Brett, you can back me up on this, because, again, you're the only other person who's seen the the bigger 
the bigger version. I don't, we're just calling that <laughs> the criterion version everything we can. I mean, there is a point where there is a boy with a, another family that is, is bad. Like it's not a good family. Um, mm-hmm. and yeah. so maybe that's like, you know, interestingly enough, like for, for two people who like espouse no interest in seeing the longer version, it sounds like the stuff that both Bill and Robin are kind of looking for exists in that longer version. Yeah, I mean, oh, that, I, that could very well be. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why I was specifically asking which which one does it more cater towards? Is it is it the more ethereal kind of first half, or is it the the second half that's more? Yeah, the extra forty minutes is stretch. just all universe creation. Yeah, yeah, no. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I I liked that stuff. I just I I preferred the specificity of the family, and like again, I did like this movie. I I'm what I'm skeptical of is the is the perspective that I think Malik, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe it is specific. Maybe it's autobiographical, but he's kind of denied specific that it's like very specific to his experience, even though it seems incredibly autobiographical. Um, Like I think I read some quotes where he's, where he kind of rejects this idea that it's about his family per se, even though obviously they're obviously parallels to his family um i, I guess like what it- i i think i think we all always have to be very careful with with what we ask artists and and what they are are willing to reveal as well because like i point blank asked tim burton what his thing with black and white is and he was like I don't know. I don't. I don't have a thing with black Just and white. Just a good contrast. Like, okay, okay. <laughs> like Jesus Christ, man. Um, so you know, I feel like that must things. have been a very deflating moment for you because you're like, oh, he doesn't even see it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's it's one of those things. But I think I think it, this family feels maybe in the children more specific versus the adults and particularly like Jessica Chastain's character which you know you you've kind of hinted at and kind of kind of uh you know throwing your weight behind Robin is that like you know this this is kind of a a character that can't can't live up to to anybody else right it it can't be real and like i get that like you know she isn't given a lot of interiority um in the sense that we normally see like developed uh you know just characters in general right but she is given this kind of you know angelic persona in a in a lot of ways and things like that but i think that character isn't very specific and i think it would be foolish of malik to be like yeah that's my mama you know it'd be like whoa whoa, let's let's meet your mom like instead i think he's saying this is all mother (laughs) like i just i I mother with a disagree with you in that like it it never in my life felt like he was saying like this is all moms But I'm not saying this is like every single mother. I'm saying like it's the collective idea of the mother. Like No, that would be the no, movie the... mother with an exclamation point. <laughs> Ew, don't even get me started on that. No exclamations, just a capital M mother. I mean, I, I don't know. I think one of you one of you had mentioned the romantic the romanticization of nature um in these films and and Brett, I think you were pushing back against that. And the film did kind of make me wonder um 
you know, if I had to choose between a a Luddite existence or a tech forward existence, which he's obviously very skeptical of, you know, he's very skeptical of the modern. Uh, I think I would always choose a Gattaca over an Andre Rublev, if that makes any sense. Like, I would, I, I would I am... run from the tech forward <laughs> because I have seen what our technology does on a day-to-day basis and it's not good. Like it's the, the tech forward thing for me is, is always that thing of like, so we made an AI, we let it out on Twitter and it became a misogynist racist in two minutes. Like it's, it's always that thing where it's like, just we... reflecting humanity. <laughs> Right. Like that. And that's that's almost always the problem, though, is that like we keep trying to to get too big with it. Like we keep giving too much power and it just it it breaks down at a certain level. But you give other things power when you have, I don't know, giant institutions like like the church, for example, like that has wielded enormous power in in detrimental ways. Yeah, but usually when you like the, the 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 global reach of the church as a global institution is a lot different now, you know, in our in our tech forward consciousness than like back when you'd lived in one community because you couldn't go, you know, 1500 miles in three hours, you know, everyone was intertwined with each other and everyone kind of knew each other's business and that comes with its own problems. But like, at least there's a kind of insularity and like understanding that you'll never get like i i could be online in a flame war with the person who lives next door to me and i would never know like Mm. that feels bad to me (laughs) you know like i i bring this up like you know people call the cops on on people for letting their kids walk to parks like you know we just we've we've moved away from actually having conversations with people around us like someone once saw my dog outside in the snow and called the county to come and take it away because they thought it was being abused because that was a better option for them than to come over and talk to me about it my dog who was again i'll just you know tell the world a husky well who lives for the snow and like a person in in my neighborhood called the county and said that the dog was outside 24 7 and was not being cared for and like you know that's just it's that kind of thing where it's like uh, you know i don't feel like that's i feel like the 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 comfortability that we all feel now well how do we even get on the subject the comfortability that we all feel now with just picking up a phone and letting something else handle our problems is leading to things like that, like a lack of engagement with the people around you and a lack of community, which leads to like a lack of security and a lack of understanding. Well, I, I think I think there's a certain like rabbit hole that you fall under when when you start thinking that stuff through, because, you know, I definitely had those moments in college where I confronted people. They didn't change their behavior. I confronted people. They didn't change their behavior. And then the RA came and uh, suddenly their their behavior changes. And it's like and they call me an asshole and they call me a dick and they they stare at me in in very intimidating ways for like the rest of me being in college and it's like okay y'all are dumbasses like i gave y'all plenty <laughs> of opportunities to you know 
pipe it down while I'm trying to fucking study my freshman year of college and y'all didn't. And so, you know, there's, there's a, a certain level of like, what does this actually get me? And, you know, I think ultimately we have to remember that like, there's a certain level of staying in your lane like, what do I know about confronting somebody about, I think they're abusing their dog. Like, maybe maybe I'm not equipped for that, you know? And, you know, mm. it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, we've, Brian, you and I have definitely spoken about, like, how many times we've confronted perfect strangers in movie theaters and have them, like, fucking blow up at us in a way that is not equivalent to what we were asking, which is, please be quiet during this movie yeah. that I paid for, mm. you know? But, and you know, Bill, like, the, the, the opposite end of that spectrum is to do the Alex Billington, Billington thing, which is you call the cops sure. on them, which is like, that's a less ideal scenario, I feel. Sure. And and I, fe- I feel like there's there's not often a a middle ground it is often an escalation which is which is yes calling the cops on somebody in that in that manner is definitely like a what the fuck are you even doing right now kind of situation but it's also like where people have gotten themselves to that they feel so out of control of the situation that they have to reach for something that's that's like an immediate stop right like that's that's like okay what is what is like what do i have access to that can actually make this thing stop or make this thing not happen anymore and it's you know for some people their reaction is to reach for the fucking phone and call 911 which is like whoa like wh- where is that middle ground and and i think in that scenario the middle ground's very obvious and it's the fucking management of the theater but you know uh i guess yeah. that wasn't you know uh, a thing that the, he thought through but um you know it, it it is one of those things where i think we have been told not to be tattletales all our life but as soon as we reach for some kind of outsource or outside help when we may not be equipped to deal with certain scenarios you know for good and for worse a lot of times we're we're criticized for that and i think you know it, it, billington is is definitely a we used to refer to him in in uh in anonymous terms i guess we're just i've stopped caring ahead. in my yeah, advancing I that's age fine. I, that's fine <laughs> maybe we'll bleep uh, but, it out <laughs> but uh it is interesting that that you know, you're kind of like, whoa, like, why wouldn't you just tell me? And I I feel like confronting someone that is potentially harming their dog necessarily means that maybe people don't want to confront you. <laughs> you know, I do love the idea that I'm so intimidating that people don't want to confront me. That does sound like I, a I, nice time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's mainly, like I said, that you abuse your dog. That's why people don't want to confront you. And I'm not saying that yes. you abuse your dog, but it's I'm like saying that book that Shiloh. Was, <laughs> yeah, that was. Their oh, God. 
I'm glad. No, that, that guy my, was definitely abusing that dog. I'm, I'm glad that. Well, that's my thing. Is like in Shiloh, the dog is like being beaten, and then in, in this case, it's just like, oh, that poor husky is outside in the snow. Um, let's get back to the movie, shall we? How did this? Sure. sure. But you know, this is the, what I think you're bringing up is no, it's not a tangent. If you think about it, he, Malik is saying that there's something wrong with our current society. That's why. Uh, Sean Penn is so desperately unhappy and is reaching backward into his mind. Like he, he's um, maybe he misses the community aspect of the way he grew up. You know, you see him running amok with his friends and frolicking and whatever grass, like, like, like there is a contrast there. And there is a reason why it made me think about whether I would rather live in that Sean Penn modern life uh, and witness like the the you know red dwarfing of our planet or whatever um is living in a stultifying claustrophobic community uh like the one that maybe he idealizes in well, what's, what's interesting is that like you know when you see him wandering around i mean malik loves this thing of like the modernist homes that give you a greater view of nature but also are more divorced from nature so it's a lot of clean lines, glass, steel, and yeah. concrete. It's so like in this movie, he finds that in Houston, we've got like this giant glass atrium, and then outside he can see workers about to like load trees into these incredible like concrete bowls that have been made for them. And it's just like that tree can't thrive there. Like that tree's not gonna live there. Like when I was a kid, I planted a tree in the mm-hmm. dirt with my mom and my dad and we poured some water on it. And this tree is going to sit in this thing. And if mankind ever ceases to exist, that tree is going to die because there's nowhere for its roots to go. So, like, it, well, it, it I, does I, feel like I, he's in a in a world now that both nature and grace don't exist in. And so, like, he's he's been robbed of both of them. Like, they just both don't exist anymore. Well, it's curious that you mentioned that, though, because, like, what do you feel about a bonsai tree? I don't know. I've, n- I've never done it, you know. They look nice, I guess. What I'm saying, though, is do you feel like that is an abhorrent rejection of nature, or do you feel well, like I think that there's is a, an embracement of nature? I like, think there's like, a difference a bill between pull, bringing a potted plant into your home and like mm-hmm. creating a concrete jungle and then carving out like a single place for this tree to be. Like I've I've thought of that when I used sure. to walk between the subway and my office and I'd see like the pocket parks and I'm mm-hmm. just like, you know, that's probably not even originally the soil that was there. You know, like that's sure. that's how that's how dead this city is is that there's not even it's not even like from its inception, we were like, oh, we should leave this patch of grass. It's like at some <laughs> point a tenement fell down and someone was like, what if we just like let it go to seed? I am um, the pocket parks thing. There was like a green space initiative in Silver Spring once. And like literally people would give up like five feet of frontage for the tax break and they just like put a tree in. And it was, <laughs> you know, it's that kind of crass craven you know, like it's, it's, it can be stultifying. Like I, I was, I was 22 or 23 and I was walking to work and I was having an existential crisis. Cause I was like, uh, th- this is, this is terrible. It's like, we've, it's, it's a little bit less 
ter- like you know the whole song pave paradise and put up a parking lot like you know at least now there's like an eye doctor and an art store like it's not just a parking lot but it is kind of weird that we destroyed everything here and then we trucked in a couple of pounds of dirt to try to like be <laughs> like yeah but it's we got a little bit of it isn't it great like no it sucks i don't like it I don't know that Malik is judging that as much as just observing the juxtaposition of that, yeah. like, you know, nature and modernity side by side. And throughout the film, there's, you know, little moments of kind of the domestication of nature, whether it's gardening in the O'Brien's household, which figures prominently in the film or pets. And in the extended version, I think there's a whole scene of going to a zoo, which is like this glass encased, you know, safari of nature that Mm -hmm. is artificial in one hand, but also, you know, real, it's real animals. And I think, I don't think Malika is saying that's terrible. It's just what it is a world where technology and humans coexist with nature. I will say just with nature in general and Malik kind of maybe being a little bit of a Luddite with technology and modernity. I think for him, like one of the reasons why nature figures so prominently is because there's, there's a reality. There's like a um, objectivity in nature that is lost in a technological world where increasingly you can kind of build your own reality. Right. And we're seeing that with social media and echo chambers and two people are, getting such different experiences of the world through their smartphones that they can't come to any issue in any debate with the same set of facts because the realities are so different. And there was a headline in the LA times a couple of years ago that I loved. It was like, we may live in a post truth world, but nature does not. And it Mm. talked about like global warming. Like it's a thing, whether you believe it or not. Right. The weather is the weather, whether you want it to be raining or not, you know? <laughs> so there's an, ob- there's an objectivity in nature that is grounding um, epistemologically in a world where we're increasingly like nomads, like Sean Penn in the desert, not knowing where to go, which direction is going to be truth or certainty uh, or objectivity. Everything is highly subjective and technology is just amplifying that as we're becoming more detached from the groundedness, the reality of, of existence. And that's where some of his Heidegger stuff philosophically comes in, um, which I won't go into, but um, yeah, I think for me, the nature stuff is less about pretty pictures and, and, you know, making my movies in the golden hour. I think there's probably some of that, that Malik just likes that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, fine to but, have an aesthetic, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's an aesthetic, but I also think there's something bigger going on in terms of the groundedness of being in this world depends on our connectedness to nature and our stewardship of nature and not seeing ourselves as so uh removed from everything mm-hmm. else, the animals, the land, like we are as much a part of it as the cows, you know, which the movie opens with a field of sunflowers and cows. That's some of the first imagery you see in the movie as Jessica Chastain's, you know, she's talking about the nuns taught us there's two ways through life, the way of nature, the way of grace. And you're seeing these animals. And I think Malik is just reminding us that like, Mm -hmm. you know, technology can make us as humans start to think that we are, uh, 
we have total domination over nature. We can kind of create reality exactly how we want it to be. And uh, we can live in a totally virtual reality of our making if we choose to do that. And that's not the path to flourishing. That's not actually not, you're not going to find happiness that way. Um, so there's that, there's that sequence, you know, Brett, you're, you're talking about this stuff. There's that sequence with the DDT truck that's so striking yeah. because, yeah. you know, you see these workers kind of going through and, and notably, I think, uh, the truck says Waco, Texas. Um, but, uh, yeah. It, it, and you see these kids just playing in the mist of DDT and you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> like what is going on here? And, and that's just the reality of, of the world at that time was the, you know, we didn't know we didn't have enough foresight. We didn't have enough technology to know that this was a, a dangerous thing in that way. Um, but you know, that is us trying to take control of, of nature because, I mean, if you've spent any time in nature, one of the first things that you, you quickly realize is, you know, bugs, insects, things like that. But mosquitoes in particular are like one of nature's true, like just evil things and you're just like what like what if i could just like everything else is so nice and so lovely there's beautiful noise there's there's all these you know different sights and things like that but my god if i have to slap my neck you know five times a minute like i'm getting the hell out of here mosquitoes are like only good is biomass to be consumed by other animals and for some reason they are the most annoying obnoxious painful things on earth yeah and there's, and there's no like beautiful pastoral shot of a mosquito landing on jessica chastain's shoulder in the film right <laughs> no. there's a butterfly landing on her but no mosquito yeah. i know a butterfly is yeah. a pollinator a butterfly is also beautiful a butterfly serves a lot of purposes a mosquito is like maybe good for spl- spreading plagues and like feeding frogs that's it no yeah, no no you're, you're, butterflies you're eat meat did you ever see like a bunch of butterflies land on some dead meat it's like gross that's wild Um, what kind of butterflies are these i'm looking them up now meat eating i think it's butterfly like okay one butterfly one to three butterflies is cute 20 butterflies is like nauseating it is a purple swarm the butterfly that feeds on rotting flesh (laughs) this friggin' rules um I was gonna say the uh, the the best use of mosquitoes ever is uh, Jurassic Park. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> um, just because uh, I am from Houston, I gotta say that uh, I've been to the museum uh, that and and the the zoo and the butterfly garden that uh, that what's his face Sean Penn is in in this movie. Well, there's also shots of the. Uh, what is it? Reunion Tower, which is in downtown Dallas that I noticed uh, this watching. I was like, Jesus. Okay. I definitely re- recognize that. Yeah. My daughter loves that butterfly uh, grotto or whatever the hell you want to call it. You should bring some meat next time you go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring like a hamburger. Jesus. I'm going to toss it and I'm going to see if the butterflies eat it. All right. Do it. But I mean, like that's, that's, you know, that's a helpful thing. You know, if, if not, you just have a rotting carcass, you know? Do you want maggots or do you want butterflies? 
I am. Um, yeah, and and just and to that point, like I think Malik probably has this ecological vision of everything works together and everything is integrated, and yeah. the key for humans existing within nature is finding a way to coexist in a way that you know is mutually beneficial and everything is flourishing and and that's a i mean what that is is a a vision of eden right it's it's kind of like malik's largest preoccupation in his filmmaking is trying to give visions and give idealistic at times certainly um visions of a return to paradise and a return to eden and it's uh it can come across you know as uh idealistic and just not real to some of the points that we've been discussing robin to your points um but that's i think that's for a reason because what he is aiming for is a kind of vision that is lofty and and hard to accomplish in a world of uh you know where where humans mess things up a lot (laughs) and we don't know how to do this well Uh, we don't know how to like steward nature well and to benefit from it without um destroying it so that's it's it's his vision and i I think it's commendable to at least uh try to capture that i've always been shocked you know because i again i i grew up catholic so every homily i ever heard was you know a catholic one and i was shocked when like i realized that other sects of christianity don't also like preach environmental stewardship (laughs) like I know. The, it's, the first, believe me, it's tragic. <laughs> I know. The first time I heard like a prosperity gospel kind of thing and then someone being like, look, God made all this stuff for us to eat it and to use it and to burn it and it'll be fine. And I was like, no, I'm what? <laughs> That's no. No. so different. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the reasons Malik appeals to me so much as a Christian, as a fellow Christian, is exactly that point that he is presenting a vision of ec- ecological kind of stewardship and care that is sadly lacking in a lot of religious circles, but is so uh, essential, you know, to, to what the, what the Bible talks about and um, just the, the big picture of, of God's purposes in the world. Pope Francis, you know, his little encyclical on climate change is so Mm -hmm. good. It's such a beautiful document that, um, you know, everyone should read that and kind of pair it with, a Malik film because it's a nice, it would be a nice pairing. Cause it's like a Chardonnay and fish. Yeah, just... exactly. <laughs> a little Pope Francis and Malik. So are there any other thoughts or feelings on uh, the tree of life that we want to get out of the way before we wrap up for today? We can I'm talk, curious, we can talk like four Brett... more hours, but oh. uh, we, we should, we should wrap up. <laughs> it, we shouldn't talk longer than the film itself. Um, a question for you, Brett. You said that you teach a few different films. I'm curious what other things are on your syllabus. Um, yeah, let me think. Um, so you had I, mentioned um, Silence and First Reformed. First reformed. Uh-huh. Um, Calvary, that movie with Brendan Gleeson. Oh, I've, nice. I've yeah. shown that one. Um, what else? Um my husband some, that movie. Some sometimes I show like Darden Brother films, which aren't explicitly Christian, but I think there's no, reli- no there's Boondock Saints religious sensibilities. <laughs> no Boondock Saints haven't showed that one yet. <laughs> um, I've, I've shown uh, Chloe Zhao's uh, The Rider. Um, okay. So yeah, I try to like just expand the idea of what a f- faith in film conversation 
looks like. Like it doesn't have to be like yeah. a movie that's about a priest or like, you know, right. the, diary, the diary of a country priest or something like but that's a great film. And there's a lot of great movies that are explicitly about Christian people, but you can have a Christian dialogue with any movie really. I mean, any, any movie that's asking questions about meaning and uh, purpose in a, in a spiritual sense is a movie that you can have a dialogue with from a perspective of faith. So it's a fun class to teach. I yeah, it, it sounds like it. I'm, I'm curious. What did you think about uh, Minari in that way? Yeah, I loved it. I, I, um, I know uh, Isaac Chung a little bit. I've interviewed him okay. uh, back when Munir and Gabo came out in 2008. I interviewed him about his faith and, and how that movie came, came out of like a, a mission trip really that he took in Africa with his wife working with kind of art therapy in Rwanda. Um, so yeah, I loved, I loved Minari cause it was, you know, basically Isaac telling his personal story of both growing up, you know, Korean in America in Arkansas and the Bible belt, but also as a Christian. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the, mm-hmm. the interesting subsections of uh, evangelical churches in Arkansas, but Korean Christians and how, how that fits together. So yeah, I loved Minari. I, I was happy to see it get, get some love this year. Same. Steve Mignon is also fairly religious from what I understand. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. I don't think I knew That's that cool. Either. Yeah. I think um, he and uh, Chung and, and Christina O, oh, who mm-hmm. was the producer on the film, they all kind of connected over their faith. Oh, cool. And yeah, it was very interesting to read about that. I'll probably show Nomadland in my my next faith and film class mm. because I think uh, you know Chloe Zhao. She's very influenced by Malik, and she, she says as much yeah. in, in interviews. So she kind of has that similar kind of metaphysical exploration. Um, and that movie is all is nothing if not like a spiritual quest of, of wandering around the desert of uh, meaning for Fern. But she comes to answers I think that aren't as explicitly religious as malik does um but it's it's a spiritual movie nonetheless and i loved it i I was so happy to see it win best picture me too yeah i could uh, there were worse ones i will definitely say that (laughs) 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 oh man all right well it has been a a sheer pleasure to talk about uh the tree of life with all of you fine folks today i'm super happy that uh i won the poll handily <laughs> you <laughs> yes i did yeah I, I i like to think that it wasn't a statement on the films so much as the person who suggested them yes the king of the podcast yep i am the host and i won so pretty excited about that but that's okay for other folks who voted for cape fear and my girl we are hoping to f- uh, come back to those films at some point later in the year. So yeah, oh, absolutely. did vote for them. I mean, there's going to be gaps there. You know, we're still not back to, you know, six new releases a week, you know, so there will be a time. Where totally. We and I am looking forward well, to seeing my girl always... for the first time in like, I don't know, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, there's always mortal combat on weekends, you know, bam, you can... bam, bam, bam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a friend who was fully inoculated and he was like, I'm going with my sister. We're going to see Mortal Kombat in theaters. I was like, you can see that at home for free. Like, why don't you go see Nobody <laughs> or something? And he's like, sure. nah, I don't know. It, Mortal Kombat's what's playing. And I was like, well, 
Can't argue with that logic. Just <laughs> glad to know you're going back to theaters. Oh boy! Yeah, hopefully, there are more options besides the oh, things that are also. Streaming. I mean, we—I I don't know why we didn't talk about Mortal Kombat, um, or why we didn't talk about the Mitchells. Because you like machine. me. I, well, that's yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm joking. Once I, again, you like me. <laughs> the Mitchells versus the Machines um, is supposed to be good. Yeah, I've heard it was cute. That one. It, it, it was cute. It, like I could have watched it with my daughter. We could have gotten more Cora thoughts. You could still watch with her. No, no. I, I am no curious. Time. Cora thoughts on. Wait, what are the core thoughts on Tree of Life? She didn't watch it with me. It was sad. Um, okay. okay. Ba- this basically, is, this is becoming a recurring bit now. Well, it's not a bit. I'm truly asking. No, no, no. I'm saying the bit is that Cora didn't watch whatever we're well, talking I'll, about. Well, oh, yeah. thing we're talking She's about. She's a real, like, shirker. Memories of murder. Um, I'll make memories watch of part murder. of murder. <laughs> You know, she loves movies that are in Korean language. Yeah, she loves the Korean films. Um, Maybe I won't let her watch that. Uh, Maybe I'll just watch Tree of Life again and have her be a part of that. And then I'll let you all know next week. Anyway, so that's it for today. Uh, Again, uh, Britt McCracken, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. Awesome. And don't forget that uh, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash filmstateshow and giving us your money. And also don't forget that we were brought to you today by Mubi, the curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Uh, if you would like to check out the original Millennium Trilogy, uh, go to mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial. And uh, yeah, that's about that. So um, what are we talking about next week? I believe we just said it. It is Memories of Murder. And um, that yes. should be a great conversation. Uh, who do we have coming for that? I'm excited. I think uh, Ingu Kang is going to be joining us. I have to confirm with her, though. Awesome. Yeah, we had her on. Uh, or, no, it was. Was it around this time last year? Bill, do you no, remember? Under the Silver year. Lake. Not last year. Oh, it was under the Silver Lake, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow. Oh, my was God. That... that was so long ago. <laughs> last year was a bye. before my time. We all know that. Um, but anyway, so excited to possibly have her back to talk about memories of murder. Um, between now and then, let's tell the fine people at home where they can find our stuff online. So, uh, Brett McCracken can be found on the Twitters at Brett McCracken. Uh, there will be a link to his, uh, threads, his threads. Oh my God. I'm so tired. There will be a link to his account in the show notes for this episode. And, uh, don't forget that he is the senior editor over at TGC, which you can follow on Twitter at TGC. And that is that. So, uh, let's uh, go to Bill Graham. Where do you, where you want people to check you out? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG, and you can find me on Slack, always mixing it up as well. All right. And Robin Barr, where can people find your stuff online? Sure. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at Robin Barr, R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R. Uh, that's, you know, just my social media. Um, if you're a letterboxed person, I always forget to plug it, but I, you can find me at my full name at letterboxed. Uh, just a warning. I don't believe in the fifth star. So I only rate out of four <laughs> stars. I'm not mean. <laughs> Three stars is a good rating for just putting you're it out. You're not there. a Michael Snydell. You actually just are not 
do it in the fifth star. That's just not your rating system. I just, I didn't grow up with it, and so it's hard for me to translate that. I get it. As for me, uh, you can find my stuff at my personal site, brianjrowan.com, and of course you can follow me on all the social media at brianjrowan. Uh, that is, um, brianjrowan.com is, by the way, where you can find that crazy-ass long thing I wrote about, A Hidden Life. Um, and you can find every episode of this podcast at filmstage.com along with a bunch of my writing there. So that is it for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. <laughs>